Um, we're going to look at uh, Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 6, in a moment or two, and uh, to focus on uh, this chapter just verse by verse, um, piece by piece as we go through. I want to, first of all, though, just uh, give you a little bit of background, but before I do that, let's just pray and ask God to be with us. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you thanking you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word which comes to us from the scripture and we ask you, O God, that as you speak to us tonight that you will find a way uh, into our hearts and as we hear your word and as we heard this morning, as we hear it deep in our soul, that we will respond to you and uh, do as you bid in your word to us. So be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just very briefly, um, the background uh, to Mark's gospel is a challenging one. If you can consider Mark as one of the writers of the gospels, but um, an eyewitness of the events that took place throughout Jesus' ministry. And uh, he was aware that a lot of the, the tradition of the church in the early days, this was written around 60 60 to 70 AD, around about that time. And uh, the tradition of the church was being carried forward um, by word of mouth. Um, but he was concerned that a lot of that tradition might be lost. And so he felt that it was important to commit the things that he had seen himself and also seen Jesus do and ha- heard others talk about. He would commit these to, to, to paper in order that the tradition would be carried on and throughout the generations. It was a particularly difficult time for Christians. There was a great persecution taking place because uh, Nero um, had set fire to the city of Rome, and he didn't want to take the blame for that. The, The people were against him, and so he decided that he would um, give the Christians the blame for the burning of the city of Rome. He really wanted to have it burned so that he could rebuild it again in some uh, more modern format. But uh, the, he decided that to give the Christians the blame would take the heat away from him and that he would somehow escape. And so hundreds of Christians were, were uh, captured and cruelly put to death during that period of time. And just as this uh, was being written, as Mark was coming to the conclusion that, that, that he should write these words, all of these Christians were disappearing and he was concerned that the words would not uh, continue. And Nero was a, a particularly nasty character. He uh, would crucify Christians. He would uh, send them to the amphitheater and one of his uh, least uh, pleasant ways to get rid of Christians was to dip them in tar, tie them to a pole and set light to them so that his garden parties would be filled with light. And so a lot of the the Christian leaders uh, and the churches were destroyed. Uh, They say that even Peter during this time lost his life. And so the the history uh, of the background of this is quite interesting. And so the the book is being written with that in mind. And uh, it is a very uh, problematic uh, situation for the church. But here we are. We have it with us today. And it always amazes me how we have the scripture in our hands today. 
and we can take it and we can read it and we can enjoy it and we can use it to uh, share God's word with others. It's uh, quite an involved chapter, chapter 6. There's a lot in it. Starts off with Jesus uh, being uh, dishonored, if you like, as a prophet. Um, it starts off again with the disciples going out into ministry in the early part of the chapter. Then it goes on to talk about John the Baptist being beheaded. And uh, there's a lot of, of information in here for us to, to take in. It finalizes with the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, part that, that wasn't read because I'm not sure that we're going to reach that far this evening. You will hope to get back uh, home again before it's uh, too late, I think. But anyway, let's, let's begin uh, looking at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 of chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And this is what they said. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that he has been given? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Sometimes I think we Scots can kind of uh, capture uh, what is being said here. We often have an understanding of that kind of sentiment that nobody from Scotland is ever going to make it. None of us in our community is going to get big-headed and um, impress people too much. It's often been said about Scots people, they only have success when they go somewhere else because they get pulled down by the people around them. And that's often the case. We often have low expectations. And here, these people from Jesus' hometown were having low expectations of Jesus. They didn't really expect too much because he was only the carpenter's son. He was only one of these lads. He lives in our street. What can we expect? But it's interesting to note that they did spot something. They spotted something quite remarkable about Jesus. They said, what's this wisdom? They began to speak about the wisdom that Jesus had. And that's an interesting word to use, an interesting place to be. We all know that wisdom comes from God. But it's more than the wisdom of man. It's more than just simple wisdom that we might use in our own family situation. The people of Jesus' town in Nazareth were not ready for this kind of wisdom. Here was their own producing words of wisdom in a manner to which they were not accustomed. He's one of us. He can't be wise, or at least we're not going to let him be. Maybe he's got the wisdom manual on his MP3 player, and he's just repeating it. Maybe he's got some sort of secret. Well, of course, we know in our reading of the Scriptures that that's not the case, but that Jesus, because he is God, has a source of wisdom that is godly wisdom. It's not human wisdom. And these people were not ready, really, to recognize him as any more than one of their own. But they wondered about the wisdom. And it's interesting to note what the Bible has to say about godly wisdom. 
In Psalm 111, verse 10, it says there, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The respect of God, the fear of God, is the beginning of wisdom. If we want to have godly wisdom, we need to have God in our lives. And of course, Jesus was demonstrating wisdom from heaven. He wasn't demonstrating human wisdom. In Job chapter 12, verse 13, it says there, to God belongs wisdom and power. It's part of God's treasure store. He has it contained, and He can deliver it to us. He can give it to us. It's interesting, in Job chapter 38, where, uh, if you remember the story of Job, where he is, his friends have been around him. He's lost his whole family. And at the beginning of the book of Job, we hear the, the story of his family being taken away from him overnight, virtually. And uh, he was able to, to utter these words, uh, God has given, God has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we sometimes are inspired with that and think what a wonderful man Job is and was. But uh, when we look further on, his friends, so-called friends, get round him and begin to talk to him and ask him questions about himself and say, what about you? And Job gets himself so mixed up and so confused until he begins to wonder whether he has trusted and put his trust in the right place and the right person in God himself. And uh, it's an interesting chapter if you want to read it, uh, Job chapter 38, where God confronts Job and challenges him. And he says, well, where were you when I threw the stars into the sky? Where were you when I divided the waters? Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you? Did you manage to uh, do any of that? Did you manage? And God was, was challenging him and almost laughing at him in his uh, 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 trial and difficulty. God was saying, come on, you've had all of this trouble, but I've been with you all the way through. And so godly wisdom is something that we need to seek and aspire to. Not to just um, accept the, the negative level or the poor level of, God, of uh, human wisdom that often comes to us. Listen to this in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19. It says this, By wisdom the Lord laid the foundations of the earth. And so godly wisdom is a powerful thing. It's something that we need in our lives if we have to carry the challenge that he's given to us uh, during the, the course of our life. By wisdom, the Lord laid the foundations of the earth. That's a powerful thing to understand. Psalm 104.24 says this, By wisdom you made them all. So this is not human wisdom. It's not an earthly intellect. This is God speaking to mankind. God is speaking to these people in Jesus' hometown, and they spotted this wisdom. What is it? How did he manage to get that? How come this wisdom can come along and he can perform so much uh, great stuff, so many miracles, so many healings? It's the wisdom of God in operation to bring back light and life to these people. And when I remember these words, light and life, I remember the, the Christmas carol that we often sing. And it says there, 
Um, in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. That's God in operation in our lives. And reading only one verse of that carol is probably not enough. So let me read some of the others to you. It's a great idea to take these things out of context and put them in somewhere that's not Christmas or not Easter if it's an Easter type event. It says here, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. It's true theology going on on here in this uh, carol. God and sinners reconciled. That was the whole purpose of Jesus coming. That was the whole purpose of this book of Mark being written and stored and kept for us in our generation. That God and sinners would be reconciled. Joyful all you nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born. It's the Christ that's been born in Bethlehem. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see. You see, God wanted us to see himself. And so he sent Jesus in order that we could see him. Jesus said of himself that he who had seen him had seen the Father. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see. God brings himself to us, this wisdom, this incredible desire to reach mankind. Hail the incarnate deity, man in God, God in man. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. It's a remarkable carol, and there are many, many carols like it that um, we need to catch hold of, and, and hymns, we've been singing some of them, but that bring a fantastic message to us. And so Jesus is identified here uh, by his, the local people as one who has wisdom. And then Jesus himself began to speak about himself, he says in verse 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. <laughs> I was just thinking when I read that, I could, I could be on the God channel if I managed to um, lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. I would be rushed off to some studio somewhere for an interview if that happened. But it was almost like this is failure as far as Jesus is concerned in this situation. So you can imagine the enormity of the power and authority that came with Jesus as he walked into a community and came there if this kind of thing is a failure. It says he was amazed at their lack of faith. And it's a troublesome thing when there is a corporate lack of faith. It's a problem. That connection of the faith of the believer and the power of the Lord coming together, we see wonderful things happen. When one of these two elements is missing, just like in this situation, faith on this occasion, then the other 
the power of the Lord to work miracles is lost. And it's a remarkable thing that God relies on us to be part of that whole process of him operating through power of the church in the community. He requires us to be involved. Jesus here identifies himself with the ignored prophet. It would be wrong, however, to conclude that that's all that he was. Many other religions and philosophies have consigned Jesus to only being a good man or maybe a prophet. But we know that that is not the case. If we read the scripture, even from Jesus' lips himself, he said he was a priest, that he was a king, that he is God himself. And the New Testament leaves us in no doubt whatsoever who Jesus was and is. If you're taking notes, then note some of these if you need to look them up later. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says this, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So there is no doubt by that alone that Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9 says this, In Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness. Now, doubling up what he's saying here, all the fullness. So there's no doubt, again, given to us about who Jesus is. He's not just a bit of God. He's not just a good man or a powerful prophet. He's not half man and half God. He is fully God. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So we're left in no doubt as to who Jesus is from the Scripture. And Pilate's words in Matthew 27 verse 22 kind of rang out to me as I was reading through this. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And that's a very powerful question that we need to answer. The people of his hometown rejected Jesus. Ach, he's only one of us. He's only we Jesus from down the street. But it's a question that you and I need to answer. We need to answer the question, what are we going to do with this Jesus who is called the Messiah? We have a very short lifetime um, when I was young, I used to always wish I was 16. What a strange thing. When I was wee, I used to always think, well, it seems like everybody gets everything they want when they turn 16. So I wanted to be 16. I kind of found out when I turned 16 that wasn't quite the case. But when you get to my age, which is 21 plus VAT and car tax and every other tax you like to add to it, you discover that life is short and you wonder where on earth is it all gone it's disappeared but we've got a short life to be able to answer the question what are we going to do with Jesus who's called the Christ of course we have a number of options that we can bring we can firstly ignore him like the people of Nazareth did virtually ignored who this man is and uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, How shall we escape if we ignore 
so great a salvation. So ignoring Jesus is not the option. We can't ignore him. Otherwise, we're going to miss out on the huge promise that he has brought. In 1 Corinthians 1, it talks about the wise man and the scholar being dumb before the face of Jesus, that they don't have anything to say. The worldly scholar is lost because the world's wisdom is nothing in comparison to God's wisdom. In fact, it says, the scripture says, and I think it's 2 Corinthians says, that the wisdom, uh, the, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, which is a bit convoluted for sometimes to get our heads round. So we can ignore him, but that's not an option. We can do like some had, and we can scoff at Jesus and say, well, maybe, maybe he's okay, but um, it's not for me. We can scoff. And it says, Luke, in Acts, Acts 13, 41, Luke, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. This is Paul speaking. Paul wasn't one to mince his words. He usually uh, shot from the hip, as it were. And he's quoting what the prophets warned way back in the Old Testament. And he's saying, don't scoff, because you're going to see something in your lifetime that you wouldn't believe if anybody told you. And of course, we know that the book of Acts describes some of the most incredible times that the church ever saw. And uh, one day we pray that somehow God will use the church in the same way again to bring the gospel to the nation and to the nations. So scoffing is not an option. Judging him, of course, we can judge. It's very easy to judge. And uh, of course, God tells us to not to judge, and otherwise we'll be judged ourselves. But here's an interesting thing that John 5, verse 22 through to verse 27 says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. He has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So we can't judge the judge. We're stuck. We're losing options. We can't judge him. And of course we can, as we read earlier, that we can crucify him. John 19.6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Here was a tense religious regime that would find any vestige of a trumped up charge against anyone to remove a problem from their sight. And yet, Pilate could find no basis for a charge against Jesus. For me, and maybe for you, I hope for you, the only option that we have is to bow down and worship him. He's worshipped in the Old Testament, in the temple. You'll find that there are many, many ceremonies that take place throughout the Old Testament in the temple. He's worshipped in the New Testament by the shepherds, by the wise men, by the angels, by those whom he uh, who healed and, and restored and set free and delivered. He's worshipped everywhere in the New Testament. He's worshipped in the church today. Here we are, still worshipping this Jesus. He's worshipped in the book of Revelation by the saints of God and the heavenly creatures. 
There's all sorts of worship going on. If we were to take a step back and say, let's ask Isaiah what he has to say. And we open the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and it says, In the, day, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And the angels began to cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And the worship of God was envisaged and seen by Isaiah. Here was a man that had been declaring woe to everyone. If you look in chapter 5 of Isaiah, he's declaring woe to everybody. And yet when he came into the presence of God and he saw God, he said, Woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And it shows us there how God restored him and took an angel comes with a coal from the altar and touches his lips. And he says, Your sins have been atoned for. And here we have one that we've come to worship this evening who has atoned for our sins. And no wonder Isaiah was able to sing and shout with these other people, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. If we were to ask Peter, the Apostle Peter, what he would have to say about worship, what would he have to say about this Jesus? He would say, well, I'm, I saw him on the mountain and he was transfigured before me and I, I didn't get what was going on. I didn't see what was, what was so important about it all. He sort of glowed and then he disappeared into the mist and then everybody had gone who was there. And I didn't get it and I sort of blurted out all sorts of weird stuff and, and I got it wrong big time. And then he came to the day when Jesus went to the cross and he said, I denied him three times. I denied him. I've lost it. And then he says, I move on a little bit further and here is Jesus on the beach cooking fish and he says to Peter, feed my sheep. He says to me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And he invited me back in again. And then on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, I was sitting there with 120 other people and all of a sudden I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The Holy Spirit comes into the building and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, when we see what other people have seen, then we can begin to open the door and see what we need to see ourselves. What would Paul say? If we asked Paul, what about worship? Should we worship this one? He would say, well, for years I was going around the countryside killing Christians and destroying churches and trying hard to get them into court and into the amphitheaters. And one day I'm walking down the road and all of a sudden the heavens opened up and there was Jesus standing before me and he said, Saul, I've come to speak to you because you're doing it all wrong. You're not understanding what I mean and I want to reveal myself to you. And Jesus speaks to Saul and he says, I'm going to change your name, I'm going to change your life, I'm going to change you around. This man, Paul, would say, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. I saw the one who could come and change a man's life in an instant. And off he goes. And he's given some training and education. And, and he goes off into the, um, amongst the people to teach and preach. What would Stephen say? Do you remember Stephen? A young man who 
in Acts chapter 2 or 3, I think it is, I can't remember. Um, Acts chapter, could be even chapter 7. I'm trying to think it back. But anyway, um, he is seen as a man full of the Holy Ghost and of power, serving at tables. And uh, he preaches to the people around him, and they hate what he has to say. It really stings them. And so they decide they're going to stone him to death. What would Stephen say about this Jesus? Is he worthy of worship? Of course, because the heavens opened. (laughs) And Stephen saw Jesus standing. Interesting that he saw him standing, because the Bible says that God, when they had done everything, Jesus sat down. (laughs) But here he is standing up. One of his people are in trouble. And Jesus stands up. And opens the heavens to welcome this young man who had been full of the Holy Ghost, who who did all sorts of wonderful things. I saw Jesus standing, and they stoned me to death, but he welcomed me into his presence. What about the men in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What about them? They would say, Well, I saw Jesus. He was standing next to us in the fire, he was there. This one, this one with all this wisdom that we're talking about, he was there. I saw him. And we came out of that fire. It was turned up, goodness knows, seven times hotter than it usually is. And we still came out because he was with us. Should he be worshipped? Yep, he should be worshipped. What if we were to ask the church fathers in the centuries before us, those of the Christian faith, They saw the Lord as the Word of God was able to be opened up to the masses. As they saw the Scripture put into print in the 1400s. And 400 years ago this year, we saw the Scriptures open and ready um, to us as a community of people, the, the King James Bible. If we were to ask the missionaries who have gone out year after year over the last few centuries right up till today, if we were to ask them, is the one that we have to worship worthy of worship? Of course they would say. But you've been through trouble. You've been through difficulty. You've had a tough time. It wasn't easy being a missionary. No, but he was with us. We saw the Lord. He protected us. He provided for us, even in our death. And he helped us to see many come to faith from every tribe and nation. Is he worthy of worship? Yes, he's worthy of worship. I remember an old missionary here in Dundee. She came from Dundee. And uh, her name was Annie Mitchell. She went to work with C.T. Studd in the Congo um, many years ago. And before she died, uh, she came to our wedding, in fact, um, which was many years ago as well. Um, But she came to our wedding. And uh, she's a remarkable old lady. And she told the story of sitting out in the Congo in the bush. And uh, there were cannibals in the area where she was working. And she had gone a little bit away from the homestead that they were living in to pray. Because she just wanted peace to pray. And she was sitting on a stone in the, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, she opened her eyes. And there was a cannibal standing in front of her with his teeth all sharp and pointed and uh, determined that he was going to have lunch. <laughs> and she closed her eyes again, 
and she prayed, Lord, if it's your will, save me from this situation. And she opened her eyes and he was gone. And uh, she was a remarkable character. She used to talk about spiritual frogs, people who jump from church to church uh, all over the place. She was a remarkable lady. These people, they saw some come to be saved from every tribe and every nation. Is Jesus worthy to be worshipped? Yes, he is. There is no question. If we were to talk to the parents who have lost their child, what would they have to say? Christian parents who trusted God and yet they've had a disaster in their lives. What would they say? They would say, yes, he's worthy. I saw the Lord. He came by his Holy Spirit and he's loved us and supported us and cared for us through a horrendous period of our lives. He's the one. He's done it. He's helped us to carry on. We can turn to a family in the third world, in Africa or Asia or somewhere, who are struggling financially in poverty. A Christian family, a pastor and his wife maybe, and the little ones. And they say, yeah, I saw the Lord. He came to us. (laughs) There was these white people turned up. And they came and they partnered with us. They were from a country called Scotland. (laughs) They turned up. And they partnered with us and they they helped us and they were committed to us over a long period of time. And we've seen our ministry and our family grow and develop. And God has advanced the work of the kingdom here. Is Jesus worthy to be worshipped? Yes, he is, of course. He is. He is the one who is worthy of all praise, of all worship. And so, when we come to understand who Jesus is, we need to say that we want to bow down and worship him. He is worthy of worship. We need to accept him as Savior and Lord. John chapter 1 verse 11 says this, to as many as received him, he gave the right or the power to become the children of God. He came to his own people, but his own people didn't receive him. But to as many as did receive him, He gave the power or the right to become the children of God. Jesus was the firstborn of this family. And we are his brothers, sisters. And so we need to accept him as Savior and Lord. We need to love him and serve him. The Bible says in Acts chapter 13 verse 36 that David served God's purpose in his generation. This is our generation. This is it. We don't get another generation. This is our generation. Every day, every day it's gone by, one more day. Every day another one has slipped away that we can do nothing. Because we can't go back. We don't want to be caught looking back at the end of our lives and say, I wish, regretting missed opportunities. And so... I've not got nearly as far as I'd hoped to. The scene I got kind of carried away there, I think. But the one that we've come to worship, the one that has the wisdom of creating the earth, creating us, dealing with us, putting into us the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that one is worthy to be worshipped. He's worthy to be accepted. He's worthy to be followed. He's worthy to be served and loved with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength.
And so let's do that. Let's worship him. Let's praise him. Let's follow him. Let's serve him. Because he is worthy of it. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, again, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. We thank you that you've called us. But you've called us into your family. You've called us into your kingdom. You've called us into your service and to your work. And Lord, we come before you this evening and we worship you because you've looked upon us. What is man that you're mindful of him? You've seen us and you've taken to do with our lives. You've involved yourselves. You've intervened in our lives. Lord, we thank you. And as we come to conclude this service tonight, Lord, we pray that our lives would be honorable to you and a blessing to you and that many might come to know you as a result of your work in us. So be with us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.